pleasant morning to brethren here at Kingston Church of Christ and to all who may be visiting with us this morning. Thanks for being our special guests. Before I actually get into my lesson, I had given Cecil a task to do, I believe his last Sunday, I may have been two Sundays ago, and I had no doubt, I have no doubt that he did it, but nevertheless, seeing that I am here, I would like to use the opportunity to extend thanks and gratitude to the brethren here at Kingston for your assisting our sister, Holine Thomas, in returning to Bible school. Indeed, the gesture was greatly appreciated by us. And so, let me thank you once more for that. Brethren, the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, that when Israel started departing from God, they demanded a king. You see, they didn't demand a king for social harmony. They didn't demand a king contrary to what they said to be led in battle. They didn't demand a king so that he may be able to judge them in difficult matters. They demanded a king because they wanted to be like the other nations around them. They demanded a king because when they looked around at all of the other nations, the Amorites and the Moabites and the Perizzites and all of the other nations, they had kings. And God's people wanted to be like them. And so they demanded a king. And though it wasn't God's will for them to have a king, he permitted it. He allowed it. And so they had their king. The Bible tells us they had three kings. The first one being Saul who was disobedient to God. And because of his disobedience, he was replaced by David. And yes, David transgressed. But we have in our Bible, Psalms 51, that shows that even though David transgressed, that he was a man who was repentant. That he had a penitent heart. As a matter of fact, the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. And so David passed the kingship onto his son, Solomon. But because of Solomon's disobedience, because of the many sins that he committed in his old age, influenced by the foreign wives we would have married, God promised to take away the kingdom from Solomon. But he promised he would not do it wholly in respect of David. 
So although Solomon remained king throughout his lifetime, during the reign of his son Rehoboam, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel defected. That is to say, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel installed a new king by the name of Jeroboam. Only Judah, that is the tribe from which Rehoboam was from, and Benjamin remained faithful to David's house, that is to say, to Rehoboam. The other ten tribes, who the Bible referred to as Israel, were subjects of Jeroboam. But Jeroboam, even though he was king of these ten tribes, he had a very big problem. He had what in his mind, and what most may consider to be a huge problem. You see, the place where God had told his people to go to worship, the place where he had commanded Israel to assemble, the house of God, that building, that structure was in Judea. Specifically, it was in Judea's capital city of Jerusalem. And that was in Rehoboam's territory. And Jeroboam recognized that if the people continue to go down to Jerusalem to worship, it was only a matter of time before their hearts turned back to Rehoboam. And so Jeroboam devised a plan. Jeroboam devised a plan to maintain his rule over the ten tribes who he was ruling over at the time. He devised a plan to fix the problem so that the people would not have to go to Jerusalem to worship. He devised a plan full of man's wisdom. And we can read about it if you will turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. And we read from verse 25 to verse 33. The book is 1 Kings. The chapter is 12. And we'll read verse 25 to 33. As we look at the plan that Jeroboam devised to maintain his rule. The Bible says from verse 25, And Jeroboam built at Shechem in Mount Ephraim, and dwelt therein, and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David, if this people go up to sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the hearts of this people turn again to their Lord, even to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, 
O Israel, which brought thee out of, out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one at Bethel and the other at Dan. Verse 30 says, And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made an house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, of the fifteenth day of the month, likened unto the feast that is in Ju Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Verse 33. So he offered upon the altar which he had made at Bethel, fifteen day of the eighth month, even in the month which he devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burned incense. The actions that we just read about of Jeroboam were the most treacherous in the history of the Jewish people. They were clearly in opposition to what God had commanded his people while they were serving him. And these actions of Jeroboam, they caused more people to sin than any other single act recorded in the scriptures. Brethren, if you will turn with me in the same book of First Kings, chapter 14. And we read verse 15 and 16. We're going to do a little bit of reading and I'll make the point as to why we are reading these things after. First Kings 14, verse 15 and 16. It says there, For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he shall root up Israel out of the good land which he gave their fathers, and shall scatter them beyond the river, because they have made their groves provoking the Lord to anger. Now look at verse 16. It says, And shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who did sin, and who made Israel to sin. Look at chapter 15 and verse 30. We're still in the book of 1 Kings. 15 and verse 30. It says, because of the sins of Jeroboam, he sinned, and which he made Israel sin, by provoking wherein he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Chapter 15, verse 33 and 34. Just below where we just read. 33 and 34. It says, In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, began Bashan, the son of Ahijah, to reign over all Israel in Terza, twenty and four years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of Jeroboam, in his sins, wherein he made Israel 
to sin. Chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, right below. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hananiah, against Basha, saying, For as much as I exalted thee out of the dust, and made thee a prince over the people of Israel, and thou hast walked in the way of Jeroboam, and hast made my people Israel to sin, provoking the Lord to anger with their sins. Turn over with me to the book of 2 Kings. The point will be made in a while. 2 Kings. Chapter 3. We're going to read the first three verses there. 2 Kings. Chapter 3. Verse 1 to 3. Now. Jeroram the son of Ahab. Began to reign over Israel in Samaria. The 18th year of Joash, Jehoshaphat, sorry, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the images of Baal that his father had made. Look at verse 2. So he was commended for. Not being as evil as his father. But in verse 3 it says, Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. Second Kings chapter 10 and verse 31, the final text. Second Kings 10 and verse 31. In this text... We're going to read about Jehu. Verse 31 it says. But Jehu, who also is another king of Israel. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. Brethren... The seven texts that we just read are seven of the 22 places in the Bible where the phrase Jeroboam sin is mentioned. The same thing we read here is said of at least 16 kings who reigned in Israel for a period of no less than 200 years. And six years. We are talking about a period of time that goes back, if we were to use our time, from 1807 until today. 206 years. Every single one of the kings of Israel, 16 of them, the Bible says they walked in or they continued in. The sins of Jeroboam. Well, if we are going to understand exactly what these sins are, and, how, and why God was so appalled and provoked by them, I think we need to take a closer look at exactly what Jeroboam did. We read it and there may be some of us who may not have seen clearly exactly what Jeroboam did. 
And so let's take a closer look before we make our application this morning. Let's go back to 1 Kings 12. And let's see what we are talking about when we hear the phrase Jeroboam's sin. The first one is found, well actually there are two of them that are found in verse 28. So let's read verse 28 again. It says, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The first thing we want to notice that Jeroboam did is that he built two calves for them to worship. Now most of us are familiar with the Decalogues. We can find them in the book of Exodus and also in the book of Deuteronomy 5. And this thing that Jeroboam did was in clear violation of the first tree. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 5. And we will see what the Ten Commandments state in terms of these laws that the Israelites were expected to keep. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6 to verse 9 says, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jeroboam said to the people, these calves were their God. Verse 8, it says, Thou shalt not make any graven image, or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water beneath the earth. And look at verse 9. It says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous of God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And so, the mere fact that Jeroboam built these calves and the people worshipped them were in violation to the first tree of these ten commandments. Not only did he build these calves and the people continue to worship them, as I said, for a period of at least 206 years. It says also in verse 28 that he convinced them that it was too much for them to go up to Jerusalem. In other words, he would say to them, why travel all the way up to Jerusalem? Look at calf right here, you can worship right here, worship that. Why put yourself through all the trouble? Of making preparation to travel all the way up to Jerusalem. And so they chose to obey man rather than God. The third thing we want to notice about what Jeroboam did is found in verse 31. So we're back to 1 Kings 12. In verse 31 it says, And he made an house of high places. And he made priests 
of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. You see, God had ordained that those who are responsible for the spiritual things taking care of the temple, those who are to act as priests in Israel, must be from the tribe of Levi. But Jeroboam was not concerned about what the words of God said. The Bible said he made priests of the lowest of the people. And I assume that he did so because he was able to manipulate them. I assume that he did so because he can tell them to do anything and they would follow him blindly. He wanted people who he could have lead, who he could lead sorry in any old direction. And so he appointed priests of the lowest of the people and he chose people from any tribe contrary to the word of God. And the fourth thing we want to notice about what Jeroboam did is found in verse 32. In verse 33, sorry. 33, 33. And he offered upon the altar which he made at Bethel the 15th day of the 8th month, even the month which he devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and offered on the altar burnt offering. If we go back to verse 32, I think I need 32 as well. It says, Jeroboam ordained a feast in the 8th month, on the 15th day of the month, like the feast that is in Judah. That is the point I wanted to make. In Judah, they kept a feast. A feast that reminded them of one of the most significant events in Jewish history. If we go back to Exodus 12, we will see there when God was liberating his people from Egyptian bondage, he told them to commemorate a feast throughout their generation. The feast of Passover. To remind them of what God did for them when he liberated them. And he told them specifically when they were to do this. Exodus chapter 12. Verse uh, 15. Now let's go from 14 then for context. From verse 14 of Exodus 12 he says... And this shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. You shall keep it, a feast, an ordinance forever. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven from your house. For whosoever eateth leavened bread, from the first day unto the seventh day, thou shalt be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation, in the seventh day it shall be a holy convocation unto you. No matter of work shall be done therein, save that which every man must eat, that only he may be done, sorry, that only may be done of you. You shall observe the feast, that is the verse I wanted. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for it is the selfsame day that I have brought thee, I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt, Therefore, you shall observe this day in your generation 
by an ordinance in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at eve, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at eve. So, it is to be done on the first month, from the fourteenth of the month to the twenty-first of the month. That is what God told them. But Jeroboam decided, hey what? We're going to have a feast like it. And we're not going to bother with the first month. We're not going to bother with it from the 14th to the 21st. We're going to do it in the 8th month. And we're going to start on the 15th. So he devised his own scheme. His own feast based on his own thinking. So these were the things that the people continuing. Year after year. King after king. Those who followed or succeeded Jeroboam continued in these sins. And brethren, you know as Christians, it is easy for us to look at this text and to see the easy application. I could have came here this morning and I could have made the easy application and did what in my mind I would have esteemed to be an easy lesson. By the way, my lesson is entitled Walking in Jeroboam Sin. Walking in Jeroboam Sin. And we could have looked at denominational people and denominationism. Don't think I pronounced that word right. Nevertheless, you know what I meant. And it is easy for us to see the application of the text that we just read. I could have spoken of how the denominational world still worships the image of Mary. Where they genuflect to their images and so forth. I could have spoken this morning on how the denominational world is convinced and how they convince each other it is too hard to sing without instruments of music how they are convinced and how they convince each other it is too difficult for us to find men to lead in the worship I could have come here this morning and I could have spoken and how the denominational world make priests of people who ought not to be priests well, in the first place, they are not Christians and they have no right being priests. But even beyond that point, we can talk about how they ordained women and how they ordained people who call themselves gay. And we could have made applications from the text of the denominational world. I could have come here this morning, I could have spoken on how the denominational world continue to replace the Lord's Supper that we were given to remind ourselves of our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His death, how they continue to replace it with things like Christmas and Easter, and I could have made those simple applications. And yes, I believe there's a time and place when we need to make those applications, but I don't think that this morning those are the applications I want to make. 
I deliberately decide that I'm not going to make those applications this morning. You see, had I made those applications this morning, it is possible that we could have all left here, left this building feeling pleased and happy and secure in the fact that we are not walking in Jeroboam's sin. Had we made those applications, it is possible that we could have left here feeling happy and secure in the fact that we are not one of those people who are doing those things. And so we are safe. But when we look around, when we see what is happening in the church, we must ask ourselves, how pleased ought we to be with ourselves? How happy ought we to be? How secure ought we to be? Simply, merely believing that because I am not one of those people, I am safe. Have we been doing enough introspection to ensure that we are not as guilty and consequently will receive the same just recompense of rewards for the things that we do? Brethren, those of you who know me know that I teach mathematics and I love mathematics. And in mathematics, there's a term that we use that we call extrapolation. And basically, basically, extrapolation basically is making projections based on patterns. So you, you see patterns based on the numbers and based on the patterns you see, you can make projection as to what the next set of numbers are going to be. It's called extrapolation. But if we apply that in the church, when we look at where we were 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and where we are today, if we were to extrapolate and to think about where we'll be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what sort of picture do you see? You know, there's a text, well, I don't have it written down because I didn't plan to speak on it. There's a text in the gospel, I can't remember exactly where now, where Jesus asks the question. He says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And I don't know how much we have ever considered that question, how much we have ever, import, ever personalized the question. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith in St. Vincent? And what am I doing to ensure that the answer is yes? Brethren, when we convince ourselves, or when we are convinced by the teachings of others, or their examples, that it is too hard for us to worship on every first day of the week, we indeed are walking in Jeroboam's sins. You see, it is possible for us to be convinced by the examples that we see around us. That it is too difficult for me to worship every first day of the week. 
In the same way Jeroboam convinced people, it was too difficult to go all the way up to Jerusalem to worship. We can become convinced, well, it is okay if I worship twice a week, or maybe three times a week. Three, sorry, three week, three Sundays per month. When we do that, we are walking in Jeroboam's sin. Because the Bible tells us clearly that the church met upon the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. When we read the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as we read this morning, Paul, when he wrote that letter, he wasn't in Corinth. Nevertheless, he said to the brethren, Concerning the collection for the saints, I want you to deal with it. I want you to give upon the first day of the week. Why did he tell them to give upon the first day of the week? Why didn't he tell them the second day or the third day or the fourth day or the fifth day or any other day? He could have clearly told them to give upon the first day of the week because he knew that they were going to meet upon the first day of the week. And so to the extent that they were going to meet upon the first day of the week, it would have been easy for them to give for the relief of the brethren in Jerusalem anyway. Brethren, we need to understand. Yes, it is a good practice for us to be critical of denominationalism. And we need to be critical of denominationalism when they do things that are contrary to God's words. But we must be careful that we are not guilty of the same things that they are guilty of. You see, we can't say to denominations, you cannot worship how you want. You cannot worship with instrument because the Bible gives you no authority for that. You cannot have women leading in worship because you have no authority for that. If we say they are guilty for worshiping how they want, we become just as guilty if we worship when we want. There's no difference. The only difference you could say, well, worshiping how you want is a big sin, and worshiping when you want, that's a small sin. So that's okay. There's no big sin and small sin as we often say. Sin is sin. And so worshiping when you want and how you want, we must put both of them in the same boat. And when we worship when we want, we are being walking, sorry, in Jeroboam's sin. Final point, point number two. Brethren, when we allow persons to lead in worship, who we know, and I need to emphasize the word, know that are not faithful, we are walking in Jeroboam's sin. The Bible tells us in the book of First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Well, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles because they give instructions to young evangelists as to how they ought to organize things in the church. And First Timothy chapter 2 is speaking specifically, I know some people may not agree with me on that, but we could discuss that another time, is speaking specifically about the worship setting. And so when Paul says to Timothy, I will that men pray everywhere, He's saying everywhere in the worship. If you don't agree, we can discuss it later. But the point I want us to notice that he says in verse 8, he says that the men who lead are to be lifting up holy 
hands. And if we know people's hands are not holy, and we allow them to lead in worship, we be doing the same thing that Jeroboam did. And we be walking in Jeroboam's sins. You see, I use these two points. There are many more that we could have used. And I didn't realize I would have gotten down here as quick as I did. But I use these two points to make a bigger point to us, Bridget. We have a job to do, and I agree. We need to point out error when error is being committed. Yes, I agree. We ought to. But we need to recognize as Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, there is a time for everything. And I believe that as the body of Christ, and if you disagree with me, fine, we can discuss it after. We have not been doing as much introspection as we ought. And we are becoming as guilty as the people who we are condemning. And the fruits of it is being shown in the bodies of Christ in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. It is, the points that I'm making here are not unique to the congregation in Kingston. It may not even be unique to the Church of Christ in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. For all I know, it may be a Church of Christ universal problem. But I'm saying, because I'm speaking to us this morning, that we need to start doing more introspection and examining ourselves to ensure that we are in the faith, to ensure that we are not walking in the sins of Jeroboam while accusing others of doing the same. Because the Bible says that our God is a just God. And to the extent that he's a just God, he must punish sin no matter who commits it. Let us be a people who practice to ensure that we are walking right before we condemn others. Or Jesus say, take the help me here. The mold out of your eye. Are going right? Before you take the beam out of your brother. That's all I'm saying. That in essence is a summary of my lesson this morning. If we are here and we in thinking about the situation are of the opinion that we have not been doing as well as we ought to have been doing. If we are here and for whatever reason we would like the prayers of the brethren, whether we want to us to say a prayer of celebration or a prayer of Whatever. I don't know what your situation is. We invite you to come. If you are here and you are not a Christian, but you would like to become a Christian, and you need to know what you need to do to become a Christian, we invite you to come as well. As together we stand and sing our song of invitation.